AI will change everything about everything. Like the internet changed everything about everything. Like computers changed everything about everything. Like uh, the printing press changed everything about everything. Like fire changed everything about everything. The wheel. AI is, is that big of a technological transformation. They only come around once every few decades, a few centuries. And um, we're entering the age of AI, one of the most important shifts in, in human society uh, ever, I believe. And um, it's happening right now. So people should absolutely be excited about it, be a little fearful of it, cautious of it, and absolutely look for ways to profit from it. So I, I'm all aboard the AI train, all aboard the AI revolution. I think it is here. And I think it's going to move very, very, very quickly over the next few years. Years. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what's up? How are we doing today? Uh, I'm doing well, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing great. Great. Uh, I'm looking forward to all these topics in just a few moments. Uh, anything exciting happen to you over the weekend? Over the weekend, uh, no. My second child, my first son, is due this Friday, so it is Countdown City over here. So you could call <laughs> that exciting. It was a weekend of anticipation. I see. Well, we're all going to be waiting in anticipation for that, I assume. And I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more about that and all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Okay, Luke, today I want to start off with two letters for you, A-I. Of course, they stand for artificial intelligence, and that seems to be all anyone wants to talk about these days. Just last week, uh, I was over with you in San Diego working on your next big project, which, drumroll please, is an AI project. In light of this AI hype, I figured we could spend a great deal of time on this podcast diving into the AI phenomenon, unpacking it, understanding it, and finding ways to profit from it. So, Let's start with the basics. We've heard the term before in science fiction, and many may be familiar with the term conceptually, but in your words, how would you describe AI? Uh, that's, that's, that's a tough question. AI is amorphous, right? AI, you can't point to it and say, hey, here's, here's a smartphone. Um, here's a computer. Here's a, here's a coffee. Um, you can't point to something and say that's AI because AI is amorphous, but if I were to have a blanket definition or description of AI, I would say AI is technology, specifically a piece of code or software that is designed and written to learn over time and improve its core functions over time and make decisions for itself. Uh, according to the logic that is written in, in the code, written in the software. So that's how I would describe AI, technology that learns, improves, and acts almost entirely on its own without the need for human intervention, without the need for human oversight. 
And that's how I would broadly describe AI. That can be manifested in so many different ways. So, I mean, just again, think about that definition is so broad. It's so generic. It's so blanket. Of course, it can be manifested in so many different ways. It can be manifested with all these conversational AI platforms that we're seeing out there right now, like ChatGPT. Google's launching their own. Baidu, China Google, is launching their own. So that's one way it's manifested. You have a, a chat bot that is basically just a bunch of software that learns every time you speak to it and produces responses, human-like responses to your conversation, to your queries, to your dialogue. So that's one way it can manifest itself, conversational AI. Another way it can manifest itself is actually the things we already use well before and have used well before those conversational AI platforms came came aboard. Um, and that is the thing about Spotify. Spotify has all those song recommendations. Every time that you are you listen to a song, you like it, that gets uploaded into their database. They learn from that. They have machine learning algorithms, which are AI, that learn what your taste preferences are in terms of music and then recommend new songs to you on a regular, consistent basis. That is AI. So it's AI we're already using. Voice AI, Siri, Hey Google. Alexa, that's voice AI. We're already using it. It's not high level AI, but it's definitely low level voice AI that is already, you know, somewhat ubiquitous. It's not entirely ubiquitous, but most people have an iPhone. They use Siri. Most people have a Google or Alexa in their home. So it's becoming ubiquity. Uh, that can be manifested. AI can be manifested in terms of uh, robotics. When you combine the AI software, a software, a piece of code that learns from itself, and you integrate that with robotics, uh, so a robotic arm or a robotic vacuum cleaner or a robotic uh, burger flipper, then you produce machines <laughs> that can automate tasks. Um, AI can be stuff like what UiPath creates, little software robots that essentially automate all these busy tasks in offices, whether that's sorting files or uh, finding information in files, different things like that. That AI is that is AI. So, what is AI? AI is a lot of things, but ultimately, what AI is is software that learns from itself, improves from those learnings and can perform its core functions better and better over time without the need for human intervention, oversight, or upgrades. And that, that is AI, and it can be manifested in a lot of different things. So the reason everybody's excited about it, of course, is because it can be manifested in so many different things. AI will change everything about everything. Like the internet changed everything about everything. Like computers changed everything about everything. Like, uh, the printing press changed everything about everything. Like fire changed everything about everything. The wheel. The AI is, is that big of a technological transformation. They only come around once every few decades, a few centuries. And um, we're entering the age of AI, one of the most important shifts in, in human society uh, ever, I believe. And um, it's happening right now. So people should absolutely be excited about it, be a little fearful of it, cautious of it. And absolutely look for ways to profit from it. So I, I'm all aboard the AI train, all aboard the AI revolution. I think it is here. And I think it's going to move very, very, very quickly over the next few years. So based on your own admission, what you just said, AI has been around for, again, not a long while, but it's been around for, for mm -hmm. a little bit of time. Yet it seems like the hype that we're talking about has been in the last month, two months or so. Right. Why now? What in the last in this short time frame has changed to put AI into this discussion right. of what we're talking about today.
So I think that question can actually be um, compartmentalized into two questions. And the first question is just exactly what you asked, why now? And the answer to that is chat GPT. We've talked about this before. Um, the internet didn't really become this huge main street revolution. Everyone get all super excited about it until we started to get these things, either personal computers that were cheap enough to go in your home or go in your home or more um, recently, the iPhone, when you could put the internet in, in your hand. Now, that is what is necessary to take a technological revolution and create hype for it, push it to the main street and allow everybody to use it and allow a path for it to become a ubiquity. You need that consumer product that everybody can touch, feel, use, experiment with to truly understand what AI is. Because at the end of the day, seeing is believing. You can talk, 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 talk all you want. You need to show people, show, don't tell. You need to show them what AI is. That's why now, because we finally have ChatGPT, we moved, we moved beyond the tell stage to the show stage. Yes, AI has been everywhere. We have the Siri, we have, but they, they weren't really impressive forms of AI. They're low-level AI. The impressive forms of AI were being integrated in warehouses like Amazon's warehouse. They're being integrated in kitchens like you know, the Misa robots, but we don't see those. We don't interact with those. ChatGPT is an application, a software application that uh, I think the last user count was over 10 million. We're probably still growing. I think the number is probably closer to 15 or 20 million now. But anyways, that millions and millions and millions of people can interact with and are interacting with every single day. So that's the why now. But the more important question that I'm kind of breaking off of your question is, why is this going to continue? Like what, first off, what enabled ChatGPT to be ChatGPT? And well, that translate into future successes for AI? The answer here is, has to do with data. What is AI at its core and how it functions, how it operates, is literally just a bunch of software code that learns from a bunch of data. So, you know, coders sit down, software engineers sit down, they create this code, they write this code, and the code is designed for them to, okay, go run experiments, get data, learn from the, that data, and then improve this core, this core function, this core process. That's all AI is. It's machines learning from data, software learning from data. So data is the rocket fuel for artificial intelligence. Well, the world, as it's become a digital world over the past 10 years, has started to create an abundance of data. Before, we didn't track, you know, where essentially where everybody was at all times. But that's what an iPhone does. That's what a smartphone does. Smartphones produce location data every single minute of every single day. So in the 1960s, we didn't know where people were. We didn't know what people were doing. Now we do because of this smartphone. Not only is it tracking your location data, but now it's also tracking your interest data because you go on that phone, you go through your apps, you go to Facebook, you go to Instagram, you go to Snapchat, you go to Amazon. All that stuff is logged and tracked. It's data. The amount of data a single human produces on a daily basis, daily basis, their data footprint is absolutely enormous. In the 60s, it was nothing. There was no data produced on a human on a daily basis. The daily data footprint of a human was zero. The daily data footprint of a human today is huge. It's humongous. 
You shop on Amazon, you browse for things on Amazon, you go to Google, you have searches on Google, you go to YouTube, you watch videos, you go to Netflix, you watch movies, you watch TV shows, you go to Spotify, you listen to songs, you go to Yahoo Finance or Bloomberg, you you look up tickers or you read uh, finance articles, you go to the Wall Street Journal, you read that. All that stuff is logged and all of a sudden your daily footprint tells exactly who you are. But more importantly, it produces a ton of data for machine learning algorithms to learn from. So that's why ChatGPT was able to be ChatGPT today. Because over the past 10 to 15 years, the amount of data creation, daily data creation globally has absolutely exploded. If data is the rocket fuel, or just we'll just call it the fuel, if data is the fuel for AI, then if the amount of fuel in the world explodes higher, the data explodes higher, then presumably the car is going to be able to drive a lot farther. The AI is going to be a lot better. And that's exactly what we got to with ChatGPT. Now, here's the thing of why it's going to continue and why that success is going to um, build on itself. Because the volume of daily data creation is only going to explode higher and higher and higher and higher. Think about all of the things that we are making smart things. We made dumb phones, smartphones. We made dumb cars, smart cars. We made dumb TVs, smart TVs. We made, you know, we're going to start making dumb clothing, smart clothing. We made dumb watches, smart watches, which I still don't have a smart watch. You know, I don't like smart watches, but anyways, <laughs> smart watches are all the rage these days. So all of a sudden, everything in our lives is becoming data capturing and data generating. The amount of data, our daily data footprint, it's grown exponentially since 2010, and it's going to grow exponentially into 2030, 2040, 2050, because we are integrating more and more technology devices, digital first devices into our life that are producing data about what we're doing, about where we're going, about what we're interested in, and machine learning algorithms are going to learn from that data. It's no mistake that the first, let's call it hero product of the AI revolution was ChatGPT, a conversational chatbot, because there is so much text data in the world, right? There's all of the written text of all the books dating back to the history of mankind, humankind. There's all the data from all the articles online and all of the, the way people word things online. There's all the data from text messages and, and instant messages and messenger and, and all that stuff. There is an infinite library of word data, text data out there. So that's why these companies went after conversational AI first, because that's where our most you know, that data library is already full. It's complete. They have all the data they need to build great AI. And guess what they did? Now we're creating all that data for our health. Smartwatches produce tons of health data. Every time you go into to the doctor's office now, every time you get scans, every time you do something, that data is logged, it's tracked, it's recorded. So now we're building out a huge repository of health data. That's going to allow big companies like Google and Microsoft to build health AI like they build conversational AI. We're getting a lot of transportation data. Smart cars are be or dumb cars becoming smart cars. These cars are now essentially computers on wheels. They produce tons of data, not just tracking data, but brake data, acceleration data, speed data, accident data. All that data gets fed into algorithms, and that's going to allow us to create transportation AI, aka self-driving vehicles. It's no mistake that here in 2023, the self-driving revolution is materially accelerating. Uber is launching a fully uh, self-driving uh, ride-hailing service in Las Vegas 
Vegas this year. Um, Waymo just completely opened up their self-driving ride-hailing service in Phoenix to the public. First time ever in the United States of America that a self-driving ride-hailing service has been completely open to the public. All the ones that have been launched in San Francisco and Houston and stuff to date have been closed. You have to have like a special invitation or get invited into it and then boom, then you can ride in the car. Now Phoenix has one that's completely open. You're flying to uh, Sky uh, Harbor Airport there and then boom, you might get picked up in a self-driving car. Just random person, average Joe. Uh, so that's really cool. You're seeing all of these delivery companies, Kroger, uh, 7-Eleven, FedEx, Domino's, they're using autonomous vehicles to deliver goods and, and food. So you're seeing those developments happen at the same time you're seeing ChatGPT launch. Not a coincidence. It's all tied together. It's mm. all related. And so that's why I'm of the belief that, okay, this is the beginning of something massive. <laughs> because with all that with all that text data they built chat gpt cool well imagine what they're going to do with all the transportation data imagine what they're going to do with all the health data imagine what they're going to do with all the shopping data that's when you're going to get ai that really changes the world not just stuff where you're sitting up here and you're like wow that's cool oh this thing can pass the bar exam oh this thing can do this oh this thing can pass a google entry-level uh engineer exam which it did or engineer test so um, that's, that all that stuff's cool, but it's not world changing. The world changing AI is the AI that we build on top of this. That's applied to transportation. That's applied to health. That's applied to manufacturing. That's where you get some real economic value unlocked. So kind of going back to the, the timeline and using our iPhone analogy, you had the internet before the iPhone, the iPhone made it popular and accessible for everybody. seems like we've had some of these automation tools in the past ChatGPT is this ignition point where AI becomes this more uh, common denominator for everybody. Uh, but what is it, again, and you're kind of describing the immediate, how it's being used, how it's being integrated, the, co the coincidences between some of the automation that we're seeing by other companies with the launch of ChatGPT. But fast forward 10 years, what does AI look like then? Where are we in 10 years? How has it changed the world the way the iPhone has changed, the way that we interact with everybody on a daily basis? Right. So the, the first iPhone really launched in 2008 and, um, by 2018, I'm going to say pretty much everybody had an iPhone. I, I don't, I'm trying to think back to 2018. I don't know the exact numbers, but, uh, <laughs> I don't remember anybody not having, you know, a smartphone, an iPhone or an Android or, or something like that uh, by 2018. So that that's 10 years, right? That's 10 years. Just let's put that in context that, iPhone launched 2008, no one had one. Uh, 10 years later, everybody had one. So iPhone became ubiquity in 10 years. I don't see why AI won't become ubiquity in 10 years. I think we follow the exact same trajectory and perhaps even at an accelerated pace because AI is such a, it's a more profound technology than the iPhone, than the smartphone uh, broadly. So where are we by 2030, 2031, 2032, 2033? Well, I think every company will be using some form of AI. So every company will be an AI company of sorts. Um, you're going to see uh, even companies, oil and gas producers, which today are using AI. So one of the big stocks we've that has been popping off like crazy is C3.ai. They're an enterprise AI software provider. And what they found their specialty and their niche is kind of providing enterprise AI software solutions to the oil and gas industry. Because let's face it, if, if you're Facebook, if you're Google, if you're Amazon, if you're Alphabet, I mean, sorry, if you're um, uh, Apple, you can build your own AI because you have access to tons of data, all the data in the world, and you have the world's most adequate 
and experienced software engineers. You have the best coders and the most data. So of course you're gonna build great AI. They don't need somebody to build AI for them. They got it themselves. Look at ChatGPT. Um, but if your shell or your BP or your Con Edison or your, you know, a company that doesn't have great coders, doesn't have a bunch of software engineers at their disposal and only has data related to the oil and gas industry, um, your hands are kind of tied when it comes to making AI. You need help. And so C3.AI has cut out a niche for itself as providing um, AI for those companies. They're the external help that comes in and allows the oil and gas industry to revolutionize itself with AI. So what do they use AI for? Well, to optimize their physical operations, throw sensors on everything, make everything a data producing device. So all of their mines, all of their rigs, their data producing device, all their wells, they're data producing now. Every piece of equipment is data producing. Feed that data into an AI. The AI learns from it, understands what is the optimal performance levels of all these machines, and then recommends actions to the people running those sites to say, okay, this machine needs uh, fixing on this, this rig needs fixing here, to always keep those operations as efficient as possible. So that's how they're using AI. But again, it comes down to making everything a data-producing device. And so that's that's where a lot of this, um, again, that's the fuel of this, of this industry or of this entire revolution, really. Um, but that's where AI is going to be, that oil and gas uses AI that way. Uh, transportation companies are going to use AI through self-driving vehicles. We're going to see every, I believe, by the early 2030s, pretty much more than half, if not close to 70 or 80% of all delivery vehicles will be automated. I think autonomous delivery via Uber Eats, DoorDash, all that stuff will, of course, be a thing. I think autonomous trucking from FedEx and UPS will, of course, be a thing, and USPS will be a thing. So I think that'll be 50% plus of all uh, trucking auto or all delivery uh, processes um, in the United States um, by 20, the early 2030s. Um, how well companies like, let's say, energy, not energy companies, um, uh, just your regular office company using AI. Well, I think AI will automate a lot of the busy work tasks in offices. A lot of people just don't want to do uh, not filing papers, but filing emails, sorting stuff. You know, Gmail kind of already does this to an extent. And that's, that's you know, low level AI integrated into there. But you're going to have much more high level, broader, widespread AI that automates a bunch of business processes that a lot of people uh, just don't want to do. And I think that really comes to the crux of this uh, conversation, which is, People are afraid of AI because they're afraid it's going to take jobs. They're afraid it's going to replace them. But all it's really going to do is automate the stuff you don't want to do. It's, you know, nobody wants to sort through emails. Nobody wants to, to fact find and all that. It, it's maybe some people out there really enjoy and get a kick out of it. <laughs> I'm sorry for those people because AI will do that. But for most of us, it's just kind of like we're doing it because we have to. Like it's something we have to do to get the job done. So if that could be automated out by AI, heck, why not? It makes me more efficient and I'll be able to you know, do stuff faster. I'll be able to do stuff more cost effectively. I'll make my company more money and I'll get more free time. Win-win. So that's what AI is going to do. And if you kind of look at where AI is being applied in a hardware setting, it's being applied to places where there's labor shortages. Everyone's totally confused by the, the massive jobs number we got last Friday. I mean, it was like over 500,000 new jobs created. People were expecting around 200,000. Like it was just a massive beat. It was like, where are all these jobs coming from? Well, you look at the line items and it's all in the services industry. It's all in leisure, hospitality, restaurants. That's where there is a massive labor shortage 
on that end of the market. And we've talked about this before. There's a bifurcation of the labor supply where my entire generation was taught you got to code, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, STEM. Everybody went STEM. So now we have a labor pool that is heavily weighted towards people that can code and people that don't want to flip burgers, wait tables, uh, package stuff in, in, in warehouses like Amazon. Um, and so you have a massive labor glut on this side and a massive labor shortage on the other side. In that massive labor shortage, that's where you're applying AI. People aren't applying AI to automate out software engineers right now because there's so many of them. We'll just go find another one. We're not replacing jobs. We're filling gaps that humans just aren't filling right now in restaurants, in warehouses, driving trucks. So that is actually a great thing that AI is doing. It's allowing the economy to function. It's allowing inflation to come down uh, without really taking jobs. It's just filling jobs that are that need to be filled and are not being filled by humans at present. So um, I don't think we should be afraid of AI. I think we should embrace it or we have to embrace it. It's changed, it's positive, it's gonna push us in the right direction. But what it's going to do is just what the internet did and what the printing press did and what the wheel did, which is unlock a whole new level of uh, productivity and allow humans to find new ways to create value in the economy. Fun fact, unemployment, 3.4%. Last time it was this low, 1969. From 1969 to 2023, there were a lot of technolo technological innovations. A lot of them people thought were going to eliminate jobs, namely the internet and the computer. People thought those were going to completely automate out a lot of jobs. And they did. A lot of jobs have been automated out by the internet and the computer. But guess what? We're at 3.4% unemployment today. Where we were in 1969, lowest level. Society moves on. It adapts. It adjusts. <clears throat> it doesn't just bend down and let technology run it over. That's what AI is going to be. I bet in 60 years, we'll be at 3.4% unemployment again because everybody will found new jobs and new ways to create value in the AI economy. And that's that's why I'm bullish on it, excited about it, and not really fearful of it. Cautious of it. You always got to be cautious of change, <laughs> but not fearful of it. Okay. Uh, so now that we've unpacked that big, complex AI topic, uh, let's get to the million-dollar question. What are the best AI stocks to buy out there right now? Yeah, so I think that, you know, probably the, and it's, it's going to sound almost boring, but the simplest, most straightforward way to play AI is to buy big tech stocks. Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, and NVIDIA. Throwing out NVIDIA for a minute, they're more of a picks and shovels play on this. Looking at those mega cap five, these are companies that, again, have access to all of the freaking data in the world. Your meta, you have billions, trillions of social data points. No one else has that. Your Amazon, you have trillions of shopping consumer preference data points. No one else has that. Your alphabet, you have trillions of search data points, consumer interest data points. No one else has that. Your Apple, you have trillions of phone location app usage data points. No one else has that. So when you look at these companies, they have access to within their own verticals, tr massive treasure chest of data. Each of these companies is also attracting the top 
engineering talent in the world with massive salaries and huge stock compensation packages. They also already have some of the top engineers in the world. So you look at the mega cap tech firms and you see a bunch of companies, or at least I see a bunch of companies that have a ton of data and a ton of talent. Talent plus data equals robust AI. It is no mistake that Microsoft, you know, was the, they don't own OpenAI, but is essentially the company behind OpenAI and ChatGPT. It's no mistake that Alphabet is now rolling out a competitor. It's no mistake that Amazon has Alexa, that Alphabet has, hey, Google, that, these, that Apple has Siri. These aren't mistakes. These are companies with data. These are companies with talent, more data than anyone else, more talent than anyone else. You put those two together, they're going to create the best AI on the planet. And so a lot of people are saying big tech is dead. Big tech is going to roll over, you know, after the dot-com crash, the big NASDAQ stocks, you know, really lagged for about four or five years. This is not that because they didn't have AI back then. Big tech has been investing heavily in AI for years and years and years and years and years. And now they're going to unleash that AI to the world in a very profound way through various products, various software and hardware products. And we're going to see exactly how big and powerful these companies can be over the next five years. Meanwhile, their stocks, or at least they were trading at, not anymore so much, but they were trading at, you know, multi-year low valuation levels. And some of them have come pumping back dramatically. Meta stock has doubled over the past two or three months. Uh, Netflix stock has pretty much doubled over the past few months. Uh, Amazon stock it got hit on earnings, but it's had a pretty big comeback. Apple stock, pretty big comeback. Microsoft stock, trying to make a comeback. So these are companies that are in NVIDIA stock, pretty big comeback. Tesla stock, forgot to talk about them. That's a company with all the driver data in the world. So I think they, they come up with some pretty robust AI as well that allows them to create some pretty cool self-driving vehicles, even though they refuse to use LiDAR, which is an entire another question, uh, another, <laughs> another topic. But, um, you know, these are stocks that are already coming roaring back to life. And I think these are rallies you want to buy into because inevitably big tech tend to create the best AI. And that, that might be a sad reality of the situation, but this, the startup opportunities in AI are going to be few and far between. You have to be very selective with them because, again, data plus talent equals very good AI. If you're a small startup, you don't really have the data. You don't have the data Meta has. You don't have the data Alphabet has. You don't have the data Microsoft has. So it's going to be tough for you to create AI on par with that. You have to compensate in some other way. That's not to say there won't be great startups to invest in. I think there will be. And actually, I'd like C3.ai because they've cut out a niche for themselves as supplying AI to companies that are not the big tech firms. Because everybody needs to graduate into the AI economy. Everybody does. You're going to get left behind. It's like the internet. You either graduate into it like Best Buy did, like Walmart did, or you get crushed and left behind, like Sears, JCPenney, Radio Shack, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody needs to graduate into the AI economy. Not everybody has the resources to do so. So CQ.ai is kind of a nice niche for itself is providing the tools necessary to graduate into the AI economy for the companies that don't have those tools themselves. I like that niche. Makes a lot of sense. There are some other companies out there that I think are using AI pretty innovatively. I think Duolingo is using AI pretty innovatively to teach people how to... Um, how to speak different languages, how to learn a foreign language. I think they're using AI in a pretty innovative way. I think that's that's a really cool application of AI. I think AI is being used pretty innovatively in the energy world. I think companies 
some of the energy storage firms we've talked about here are using Fluence, for example, is using AI in a very innovative way to optimize energy usage and energy storage. That's really cool. So there are definitely startups out there, smaller firms out there that are using AI in innovative ways, which I think are going to completely benefit their businesses. And that's another way to invest in AI, but you gotta be very selective with those firms. At the end of the day, the best and strongest AI is going to be built by big tech. Um, interestingly enough, you've mentioned to me that there are actually two ways to profit off of AI. Uh, so one, buy the best AI stocks, which we just covered. Uh, big tech seems to be the go-to. Use, uh, but the second, use AI to pick stocks. Uh, can you dig a little bit into that second point? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So there's two ways to profit off AI. One, invest in the best AI stocks. Two, use AI to pick stocks. The second one is far more interesting to me than the first, actually, because we talked, I mean, I, I kind of had this really, one of my more, I'm not going to say emotional, but maybe raw podcast that we've done together was a few <laughs> weeks ago when I was talking about how AI is just going to be this ultimate tool and you either have to use it mm -hmm. to your advantage, leverage it for all it's worth, or you're going to get completely left behind. That is so true in the stock picking world and the investment world that AI cre is this unfair advantage. And if you're not playing in the AI world, you're playing on a much lower playing field and you will, you are at a massive disadvantage and likely will never score or win against the big boys. Cause at the end of the day, right? The stock markets are competitive for every time you buy something, there's somebody on the side selling every time you sell something, there's somebody on the side buying. So it's a very competitive game. If your competitors are using AI to find stocks that are superior to find stocks that are breaking out to find stocks that are, are going to deliver exceptional returns and you're not, you're going to be forever be a disadvantage of them and probably either, if not having lagging returns, then maybe even have negative returns. So you want to figure out how to use AI in your stock picking strategies and preferably as soon as possible. And in our world, we're doing that. We're starting that process that we are starting to integrate AI into a lot of our systems and we think that it's, we hope that it's going to deliver some pretty exceptional returns for us in, in the short term. But even more than that, we view it as just necessary that if we don't do it, we're going to be antiquated within five years. If I don't tell my team right now, we need to start working on developing AI systems to help us scan for stocks that are, you know, you can apply it in so many different ways, whether you're looking at technicals, using AI to find out, you know, what are the best technical factors to look at that are the most predictive, look at fundamental factors. You know, the whole thing here is called hyperparameter optimization, and that's essentially just using machine learning algorithms to figure out what factors in your stock picking model are the most predictive and adjust those to different market scenarios, macroeconomic environments, and then leverage that to scan the market for stocks that have the most predictive factors in this certain market environment and then buy those stocks. You know, that's one way to do it. And that's something I believe my team, we, all stock pickers, all investment analysts have to do. And if they're not thinking about it right now, they're behind the eight ball because they're <clears> going to get replaced. So that's, that's where we are. That's where we're thinking. And we're really excited about how we, where that journey is going to take us over the next <laughs> few years. Well, that is actually a perfect segue into my next topic, uh, which is, again, how you are 
uh, using AI to start picking stocks. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, you've, you kind of mentioned you're dabbling in it right now. You're applying it to your breakout trader quant system, which, by the way, congrats on the success of that system. Uh, for any of our listeners unfamiliar with this system, you just beta launched in mid-2022 in the middle of a nasty bear market, and you've already seen some great results from that system. In fact, a little birdie just told me that your system just bagged its first 100% plus winner in just three months. So congrats on that. Big feat, especially in a bear market. But back to the question, how are you planning on using AI to improve that already what seems to be a pretty successful system? Right. So let, let's contextualize this for a little bit. If I had to dream up of the best investment strategy, just me personally for myself, two-prong approach. One, my long-term fundamental investment, which is what we spend the bulk of this podcast talking about. I'm finding early stage growth companies that have a tremendous amount of talent and potential to change the world over the next five to 10 years, generate huge gobs of revenue, massive profits and cash flows and the stock price soars. These are, these are things that I want to buy and hold for five, 10 year windows on the idea that the next Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And their five X, 10 X, 15 X, 20 X investment opportunities. That's half the investment strategy, long-term fundamental investing. We really dig deep. We know the companies inside and out intimately. We know their growth potential, their trajectories, their numbers, and we buy and hold those stocks for the long-term. We don't care about short-term fluctuations or volatility. We absorb it, you know, 50% drawdowns and we just bounce back with it. So that's my long-term fundamental strategy. The other half of it would be a quantitative approach that allows me, because the thing with that is it requires patience. You buy and hold and you sit for 10 years. You, you buy something, you put in a coffee can, you check back in on it in 10 years. But I also kind of want to make money in the short term. I want to make money on a one-year basis, a two-year basis, a three-month basis, a four-month basis, a five-month basis. And that's where I think the other half of my ideal dream investment strategy would be a quantitative approach that uses some system to find stocks based on technical factors that are breaking out in the short term and are, I can capture those breakouts, get a bunch of profit in the short run, leave it, sell it, and then go look for the next breakout stock. So that's what I would do, a long-term fundamental buy and hold strategy coupled with the short-term technical trading strategy. Put those two together and you get the best of both worlds. You get the opportunity for 5, 10x, 20x best opportunities over the long term where the real wealth is created. That's where the real wealth generation happens. And you have the opportunity to make a lot of money, good money, great money in the short term by coming in and out of stocks that are moving fast. The way that I've employed the second approach of that, you know, the quant approach is we've created something called our breakout trade systems you talked about. And that's built on top of this idea of stage analysis, which I think anybody who's listening, if you haven't heard about stage analysis, you should go read about it, look it up, learn it and integrate it into your trading strategy, your investment strategy. So stage analysis is essentially this idea that at any point in time, the market or a stock, any asset, any tradable financial asset is going through four stages. Stage one is the basing stage where it's consolidating at a low level. Stage two is when it exits that consolidation and breaks out higher. Stage three is when the rally starts to top off and it's consolidating at a high level. And stage four is when it breaks down out of that consolidation at a high level into a massive decline, stage four decline. Then it goes back into a stage one basing pattern, then a stage two breakout, stage three top, stage four decline, stage one basing, stage two breakout, stage three top, stage four decline. Every stock follows this pattern 
over and 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 over again. That's what the concept of stage analysis is. And the idea of stage analysis, applying it to stocks, is to find stocks, at least the way we're doing it, find stocks that are going from stage one basing patterns and are just entering stage two breakout channels. On the idea, these are stocks that are breaking out. They are in the ascent phase. Those are the stocks we buy, and then we sell them once they enter the stage three topping phase. So that sounds very simple, right? The idea is, okay, just buy stocks that are breaking out of stage one into stage two, sell them when they get into stage three. But how do you know when a stock's actually breaking out of stage one? How do you know when it's finally entering stage three? The, you know, the devil's in the details here. And we've created a model that allows us to look at a bunch of different parameters and figure out, okay, if it does this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, then we know that it's entering stage two. If it does this, 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 and this, then we know it's entering stage three. So we have a bunch of different parameters to define buy signals entering stage two and sell signals exiting stage two for our stocks. And that's how we've applied and used the breakout trader system over the past several months. And as you pointed out, it's had some pretty good success so far. And I'm really happy with the results, especially in a bear market, even in a bull market, I'd be happy with the results. The results are pretty good. Um, so really, really excited and happy about that. But I could not be more thrilled about the next evolution of this system, which is taking AI and putting it in the system. So the way the model works right now is we have all these parameters, but they're all equal weighted. Right. Everything to us is an equal weight. This, this, this. And I can't. I'm sorry. I'm saying this, this and this. I can't <laughs> tell you exactly what the parameters are. I can't give away the model. But, you know, we have all these parameters, parameter X, Y, Z, A, B, C, 1, 2, 3. And they're all equally weighted because we don't know which one's more predictive than the other. We are in the process now of learning how to integrate artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms, hyperparameter optimization into this model so that we can understand or rather the algorithm can understand which of these parameters are more predictive than the others parameter a is more predictive than parameter x parameter two is more predictive than parameter b and then it can weight the model accordingly so as opposed to looking for parameters one through nine parameters a through x we now are going to focus on parameter B more than parameter C, parameter D more than parameter G, parameter 2 more than parameter 4. And they can all of a sudden weight these parameters based on dynamic market factors. And that's where it's going to get really cool because we're now not just going to be able to find, you know, what parameters allow us to find stage 2 stocks, but it's going to tell us which of those stage 2 stocks have the most firepower have the most evidence of scoring huge returns in a short amount of time for us. That's where the AI comes in and it's going to be a complete game changer for this model. I think it's going to completely blow the socks off what we already have, which as you said, again, and I'll repeat it, is, is pretty good so far. So that's how, that's an example. It's just an example of how we're using AI to graduate our investment strategy, at least our short-term technical investment strategy to the next level. And if people aren't already doing this, then they really need to start thinking about it or asking their financial advisors to start thinking about it because this is the next level of investing and trading. On the fundamental side, we're thinking about using AI to start doing that same hyperparameter optimization for fundamental factors. Okay, which sort of fundamental factor is the most indicative of future success? Is it talent flows? Is it you know cash in the balance sheet for an early stage startup? Is it you know revenue growth, revenue acceleration, revenue jerk, which is the change in acceleration rates quarter over quarter? Um, is it profit margin? Which of these, you know, we all have an idea of what's important. We want to see revenues growing and profit margins expanding and earnings rising, but which of those are the most important? 
You know, let's let's find that out. So we can apply AI to that. So these are just a few examples of how we're using AI to, again, graduate our trading and investment strategies to the next level because the playing field is changing. And if you're not changing with it, you're going to be left behind. I fundamentally believe that. And we want to be on the, the cutting edge of this. We want to be one of the first adopters of it because I think that's going to give us a huge advantage for many years to come. So that's my two cents right there. <laughs> All right. Uh, that was a ton of AI. Um, let's I want to shift topics a little bit. Uh, actually kind of still in AI realm because you just talked about these companies, which according to you are AI companies, and that's the big tech. The yeah. mega cap six have all now reported earnings, and I want to dive into their results. Uh, some were good, some were meh, uh, but you're telling clients that all of them paint a pretty bullish picture for stocks, correct? Yes, I am. I'm just pulling up my my notes on the on the big tech earnings um, because I want to make sure I get all this right. But yeah, I mean the the earnings were, in my opinion, fantastic relative to expectations because the, a huge tenant of the bear thesis, Aaron, was that earnings were going to be apocalyptically bad, like terrible. Q4 earnings were going to be awful. It was going to kill the bear market rally. 2023 earnings were going to get revised significantly lower, and the whole market was going to get crushed. And that just hasn't happened. We're not all the way through earnings season yet, and there's there yes, there are some duds, but big tech represents the U.S. economy. Let's be honest. Meta and Alphabet have the pulse on digital advertising. Google or Alphabet, Amazon, and um, Microsoft have the pulse on cloud spending and enterprise software spending. Um, Apple has the pulse on consumer spending on electronics. Netflix has the pulse on consumer spending on, um, you know, kind of discretionary items. Just streaming is, is, I would say, a discretionary item, but maybe for others, it's a staple. Actually, maybe in the lingo household, it's a staple. But in any event, <laughs> these companies, Tesla has the pulse on automotive demand. So these companies have the pulse of the U.S. consumer, the pulse of the U.S. economy. And when you listen to what they said on their calls, it's pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. Pretty much everybody, not consistently, but most of the companies, the consensus takeaway was that the fourth quarter was not great. The 2022, the fourth quarter was not great. But it felt like the trough quarter. And trends started to improve in December and have been improving in January. Most of these companies gave not good guides, but better than feared guides for this quarter and sounded pretty optimistic that 2023 was going to be a better year than a lot of people feared and not this apocalyptic, you know, recession year. And I think most impressively, which is something we've been telling our subscribers, tech stocks follow profit margins more than they follow revenues because, as much as some people might want to disagree with this, the reality is tech companies are going to grow revenues for a very long time. Um, technology is taking over the world and tech companies are going to witness very significant and steady revenue growth for at least my lifetime. So for a long, 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 long time. What matters more and was more dynamic is the profit margin picture. Profit margins are not guaranteed to go up over time for tech firms. They are... You know, they oscillate between good and bad, rising and falling, expanding and contracting. And a lot of people thought, this is kind of another huge tenet of the, of the bear thesis. Morgan Stanley was is very big on this. Um, profit margins of tech companies are going to contract in 2023. And then when we heard that in late 2022, we're like, no, that's completely wrong. 
These companies are firing people left and right. They're getting rid of a lot of fat that they had, that they, they uh, acquired in the pandemic. Now they're getting rid of that excess cost base. At the same time, inflation is coming down. So a lot of input costs for these companies are coming down, like Tesla. So why would these companies, and wage inflation is coming down. We're seeing wage growth moderate significantly. So why would these companies see contracting profit margins when they have lower employee bases, less wage inflation, and lower input costs, and their management teams are sounding very prudent about their expense control. That, to me, sounds like a recipe for profit margin expansion. And that's exactly what these companies are saying. Meta, Tesla, Tesla a little bit less so because they're enacting price cuts, so they're kind of a unique situation. But Meta, Netflix, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, they pretty much all said, yeah, um, Profit margins are going to improve in 2023. They're going to get better. And so that's why if you kind of look at the EPS revisions for a lot of these companies coming out of those earnings, they were actually positive. And free cash flow uh, uh, revisions were also positive as well because these companies are getting their costs under control. So now all of a sudden you have a situation where you have these tech firms. Everybody thought profit margins were going to collapse. They're not collapsing. They're in expense control mode. So their profit margins are going to expand. If the economy can pull off a soft landing, that's going to be up to the Fed then tech companies are going to be looking at a year in 2023 where they're under they're in expense control mode. So profit margins are going to expand and revenues are going to increase to the upside more than expected because of the soft landing. All these companies, basically the guys were like, we think 2023, you know, we have a mixed look at what the economy is going to look like. So uh, we're going to be cautious with our guidance. That was pretty much what all these companies said. So if the economy does not fall into recession, the macro environment improves because of the Fed, then tech firms will experience above consensus revenue growth and above consensus profit margin expansion in 2023, which of course sets the stage for far above consensus earnings growth. And that sets the stage for these stocks to soar. So what I heard from big tech in the past two weeks got me really bullish on tech stocks. It's no coincidence that as these big tech earnings were rolling in and as Powell said, disinflation has begun, the market rally like crazy. And then today, as we're talking, actually, I'm looking at the NASDAQ. It's up 2%. Powell's taking the stage. I'm not paying attention right now because I'm on this <laughs> podcast. But apparently, you know, one of my analysts just just uh, messaged me. He started off the entire press conference with a comment about disinflation. So there you have it. I think that what Big Tech told me over the past two weeks is that this whole narrative of tech dying is so overdone. It's absolutely silly. And you need to be buying the dip in tech. Okay. Uh, well, now, definitely moving on from AI, uh, I want to talk about the macros. Uh, red hot start for stocks in 2023. Mm-hmm. That appears to be pivoting. Inflation appears to be falling. Economy seems to be stabilizing. Is it going to be smooth sailing from here on out for stocks? There's no such thing as smooth sailing when you're exiting a bear market. <laughs> Exiting a bear market is uh, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. And that's exactly what we're going to get over. I think that process has entirely begun. Um, We are going to take two giant steps forward, one small step back, two giant steps forward, one small step back. So not smooth sailing up, up and away, but very constructive progress towards significant returns in 2023. And hopefully that pays way for a big bull market in 2024, 2025 and on. Can't really say that with confidence yet, but I can't say 2023 is going to be a very fantastic year. The reality is, is that inflation is coming down so convincingly. Um, everybody's like the strong jobs report though, you know, inflation can't come down. There is no 
law in finance that you need the economy to lose jobs for inflation to come down. In fact, multiple times before, since 1950, inflation has come off without the U.S. economy losing jobs. You don't need job loss for disinflation, especially when the inflation that was created in 2021-2022 wasn't created because we had so many jobs out there or so many people were employed. That inflation was created when unemployment rates were above average. It was created because of supply chain pressures. Those supply chain pressures are now moderating significantly. And in fact, according to many measures, have completely normalized back to the pre-pandemic levels. And in 2023, we'll absolutely on all metrics normalize back to the pre-pandemic levels because China's reopening and that's 30% of global manufacturing. So supply has normalized. Demand has taken it taken a hit too because of the Fed. Supply down or supply up, demand down, that sets the stage for massive disinflation. You're seeing home prices roll over. So CoreLogic just came out with their home price index forecast for January. And they think that home prices, based on the leading data they're looking at, are only going to rise 3% year over year in January. That's below average. Since 19, the 1970s, the average home price appreciation rate annual is about 4% per year. We're going to fall to 3% in January 2023, below average home price growth. For reference, back in 21, I believe was it was late 21 or early 22 is when we peaked, I forget, but it was right around 20%. So we've come down from 20 to 3. Home price growth is completely normalized. Commodity prices are rolling over. Oil can't bump above 80. Natural gas is rolling over so fast. It's like a meteor crashing out of the sky below three bucks. Food prices are now starting to come down. Um, uh, vehicle prices are starting to come down. Tesla price cuts, Ford with their price cuts, GM price, price cuts everywhere over there. Okay, You're seeing discretionary items, whether it's clothing or whatever else it may be, come down as well. You're seeing travel prices come down. You're seeing airfares come down. Prices, disinflation is, is here. The wave has arrived. And I, the one thing you got to worry about is potential reinflation because now all of a sudden, you know, stock market's heating up. But again, there's no historical evidence that says, okay, if the stock market rebounds, inflation rebounds. There's no correlation there. So I don't think the stock market heating up is going to cause reinflation. And in fact, you go and look at the things that could cause reinflation. The stock soared in January. Oil didn't move. Oil stayed below 80. It's not moving. In fact, at one point in January or maybe early February, it fell down to 72. It's not moving. Natural gas plunged in January. So these are things that are inflationary drivers. Bloomberg's commodity price index, it dropped in January. So the things that could have reinflated in January didn't reinflate, which tells me the disinflation process is here and it's here to stay. The Fed is going to acknowledge that. The Fed is going to pause. And once the Fed does pause, the economy is going to restabilize. Stocks are going to soar. And that's going to be an, uh, at least in a big 12-month rally for, for the market. Whether or not that goes into a new bull market or not in 24, 25, 26, it's going to depend on the data you know, that I cannot see right now in 12 months in, in the future. <laughs> but for right now, I'm very confident stocks are in the midst of a big breakout that continues at least for 12 months. Okay. So you've talked about commodity commodity reinflation, and you specifically mentioned oil mm -hmm. and natural gas, which have failed to catch a bid despite the China reopening. Uh, you were maybe the only oil and uh, natural gas bear out there in mid-2022 when everyone was calling for $200 oil and $20 natural gas. Uh, and you said at the time both would collapse. Both have. 
Oil is below $75. Natural gas is below $3. Massive crashes. You said you don't see those catching a bid anytime soon. So would you imagine that those energy stock winners of 2022 will become losers in 2023? Um, I, it's... Mm. It's tough to see energy stocks crashing, but I think, you know, we talk about, you know, that stage analysis, stage one basing, stage two breakout, stage three topping. Energy stocks, in my opinion, are very clearly in a stage three topping pattern. You look at the XLE, the energy ETF, that has formed a clear triple top right around the 90s. I mean, just boom, 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 just clear triple top there. That's where it's topped out, historically speaking, you know, several years ago, several years before that. This is just a long-term top for the for for the ETF. It's clearly losing momentum. It's it's rolling over. It's stage two turned into stage three. Does that mean it starts a big stage four decline? Tough to say. That's going to depend on a lot of things, a lot of factors. Uh, I can't really say with confidence. That's not my wheelhouse. But I can say that these stocks are definitely in a technical stage three top, and the fundamentals support that. I mean. Everyone's talking about China demand bringing up in uh, commodity prices, and it hasn't, and it's not going to because we talked about this last week. China's 18% of global demand, but it's 30% of global supply. So China brings on more supply than it does demand when it comes back online. So forget this China reopening, creating a big boost for oil narrative. It's That completely misses the picture of what China is. It's the manufacturing hub, not the demand hub. The U.S. is the demand hub. China is the supply hub. So we're bringing the supply hub back online. That's actually a, a win for the disinflation process. So I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I think that gas and oil continue to struggle to, to catch a bid. They've come down quite a bit, though, so I don't know if they keep keep crashing. Uh, and I don't know if energy stocks roll over, but I do think energy stocks, the further potential upside is limited in those names, absolutely. And it's it, considering the potential returns that should be had in 2023 in high growth stocks, tech stocks, I don't see why people would be putting the work putting the money to work in energy right now. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. The upside limited, downside risk pretty large. Looking at the other stuff, downside risk pretty limited, upside potential pretty large. You like to invest in asymmetric bets, risk or potential is in your favor. I don't see that in energy right now, but I see that in tech. I see that in consumer discretionary. I see that in housing. I think there's a lot of different areas in the market right now where you can make a lot of money with not a lot of risk as opposed to going in energy, which feels like it's topped out. Uh, on the other side of that coin, uh, one sector that you're super bullish on for 2023, and that's alternative energy, solar, wind, hydrogen, energy storage. Uh, last week, we talked about a BP report saying bad news for fossil fuels is good news for alternative energy. Uh, are we sticking with this call for 2023? Uh Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, BP is something I'll perfectly in their report, you know, long term, 5%. Demand destruction for uh, fossil fuels, 5% demand creation for, for renewables. It's just a shift. Um, I think that what's going to help, you know, if you kind of look at the, the picture, we've talked about this before, the world face an energy crisis in 2022. And if we don't adapt, we don't move forward. That's what Coach John Wooden of UCLA said, guy who won 10 national championships in 12 years, legend. Um he said, if we don't adapt, we don't move forward. We had to adapt to the world of 2022 when we had a global energy crisis to move forward as a, as a society, uh, as, as a human species, really. Um, and we had a choice. Okay, is the adaptation going to be pump more fossil fuel or is the adaptation going to be accelerate the energy transition? 
And across the board, companies and countries chose to accelerate the energy transition. The U.S. passed legislation to accelerate the shift to renewables. Uh, the European Union did the same. So did China and Japan and Australia and pretty much every economic powerhouse in the world. They all looked at the situation in 2022, the crisis, and decided we're going to solve this medium to long term by accelerating the transition to renewable energy. So that is the massive tailwind at the back of the alternative energy space. Now you're going to get additional tailwinds in 2023 with falling supply chain costs. That China is a huge producer, again, world supply hub, huge producer of a lot of polysilicon, a lot of polysci for solar panels. That means that solar panel costs, indeed, the polysci metal costs have come plunging down over the past month. That is going to create a massive tailwind for the cost of solar projects. Solar project costs are going to crash in 2023. That's going to make them more affordable. Remember, one of the big drivers of solar adoption in the 2010s was this massive decline in cost of solar projects. That got reversed in 2022, but now I think that secular decline trend is going to continue in 2023. So I think that's going to be huge for solar. Um, I think that in the electric vehicle world, you're getting massive price cuts. That's very stimulative for demand. And so I think you're going to see a lot of EV demand come online in 2023. In fact, I know a lot of people that have become pers- or have become EV buyers in the past month just because of the price cuts. So I think that you're going to see a lot of demand come online uh, in the electric vehicle world. Uh, with respect to hydrogen and energy storage, the IEA just came out with a report on hydrogen they said that the amount of new battery energy, sorry, a new report on energy storage, they came out and said that the amount of battery energy storage capacity installed in the United States is going to be double in 2023, the entire energy storage capacity in the United States today. So I think it's something like we have like eight, eight gigawatts, nine gigawatts um, installed today, and we're going to install about eight to nine in 2023 alone. So 2023, we're going to install more energy storage capacity than we have in the entire United States right now installed over the past 10 years. That industry is booming. That's where the fluence, that's where fluence comes in, as we talked about earlier. So I think, yes, the all energy bull thesis could not be stronger right now. I think the stocks, look at solar stocks, looks like they're about to stage a big breakout. EV stocks are staging a big breakout. Uh, wind stocks are already staging a big breakout. The technicals look good. So I think strong technical, strong fundamentals. Yeah, you got to get bullish on all energy. Uh, okay, so going back to EVs real quick, uh, price wars abound in this industry right now. Uh, you've said it, it'll be good for demand. Uh, maybe Wall Street agrees. EV stocks are soaring here in 2023. Mm-hmm. I think Lucid and Tesla are both up around 70%. Um, again, good reasons to be bullish for the industry as a whole. Yes. Again, price cuts are stimulative for demand. And these companies can afford to do price cuts this year and simulate demand because inflation is coming down. Their input costs are coming down. A lot of the costs, a lot of the materials that they get come from China. China's reopening those costs and continue to plunge. So these companies can afford to execute price cuts without compromising too much on profit margins. Meaning that 2023 will be a year of accelerated revenue growth for a lot of EV companies with either stable or slightly reduced profit margins, meaning earnings should be very, very strong. So I think that it is going to be a fantastic year for EV stocks. There's a lot of short interest against names like Rivian and Lucid. And I think, you know, those shorts are going to be forced to cover, which is going to create a lot of buying, a uh, huge buying frenzy in those names. You've seen it uh, year to date, you know, Lucid's up about 70%. Obviously, there's the, the takeout rumor uh, from the Saudis. 
um, uh, playing a, a part in there. But um, a lot of Tesla is up massively too, a lot of short interest there. So I think that EV stocks are due for a very, very, very strong 2023 driven by price cuts stimulating demand and lower input costs, allowing those price cuts to not compromise profit margins, which will lead to good cash flow and earnings growth. So I really like EV stocks in the setup here. These are the futures of the automotive industry and they're trading at generational discounts. So go ahead and buy them. Okay. Uh, and then switching gears to housing. Rumor has it you're thinking about a big stock shopping spree soon and that the housing sector is on, in your crosshairs. So why housing and why now? Right. So yeah, the housing data to me is just getting so, 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 so bullish. Um, perhaps the biggest one is mortgage application volume. Um, the 10 week moving average of mortgage application volume is turning higher and has been turning higher for the past few weeks. That's the first time mortgage application volume, uh, that 10 week moving average has started to turn higher in this entire, you know, down cycle for the housing market ever since late 2021. Um, anytime that that starts to happen, usually the housing market is at a bottom and, and ready to go. Mortgage application volume is a very strong leading indicator of the industry because when you think about it, that's the leading indicator of demand. If people are applying for mortgages, they're thinking about buying a home or they're bidding close to buying a home. So that's turning around. Another good leading indicator, housing starts, building permits. Those are starting to turn around as well. Leading indicators of supply. So you're seeing permits start to turn around. You're seeing starts start to turn around. You're seeing mortgage application volume turn around meaningfully. You're seeing mortgage rates come down meaningfully. You're seeing home builder sentiment start to rebound. You are seeing existing home sales start to stabilize, new home sales start to stabilize. Every single metric in the housing industry is telling me this is an industry that is ready to thaw. That we had the housing market freeze of 2022 and now the freeze is thawing. And you always wanna buy housing stocks when a freeze turns into a thaw because that's when you can buy housing stocks at big discounts before big growth, a big rebound in growth. Then you're going to get that with home builder stocks. You're going to get that with housing technology stocks. And yes, a lot of housing stocks are in our crosshairs right now. I think it's a great time in February 2023 to be buying housing related stocks. So long as the Fed doesn't throw a wrinkle into the equation. And right now, given getting some some highlights from the from my analyst team about how the speech is going, and it sounds like it's going exactly how the speech last Wednesday is going, which is. You know, Powell has to sound super hawkish. Mm -hmm. That's his job. He's hiking rates. When you're hiking rates, you want the rates to work. You have to sound hawkish. So the base case assumption for Howell, for Powell, Howell, hawkish Powell, Howell, maybe that should be his name. Uh, <laughs> the base case assumption is super hawk. At any hint of dovishness, that means that guy is thinking about perhaps pausing the campaign pretty soon. And he's, he's showing hints of dovishness. He opened today's remarks with a disinflation comment. He talked about disinflation last Wednesday. This is a guy who refused to acknowledge disinflation for 12 months, maybe rightfully so, even when it was happening over the past six months. So the fact that he's acknowledging it now, again, we're getting that sentiment of rhetoric pivot. It doesn't look like the Fed is going to throw a wrinkle in the equation. So long as they don't, the housing market looks ready for a massive rebound and housing stocks, housing-related stocks, look ready to soar in 2023. The last time I was as bullish on housing stocks was... December 2018, January 2019, right before the Fed paused then, which led to a massive housing market recovery in, 20, in 2019. And housing stocks absolutely soar 50% or more. So I think we're going to get a similar rebound here. And that's why they're in my crosshairs right now. Okay. Uh, I want to wrap this episode with uh, a topic that we don't really talk about a lot and picking your brain on a sector that you claim to not like. 
uh, consumer staple stocks, the safety bets, the P&Gs and McDonald's of the world. Uh, what do you have against stuff that everybody needs? Uh, what I have against them is everybody played the safety trade in 2022, and now it's too crowded for comfort, mm-hmm. far too crowded for comfort. So I'm mentioning those names. I'm pulling up the multiples on them right now. These things got so extended. So Procter & Gamble, this is a company that's going to grow revenues 2 to 3% per year for the foreseeable future. No upside to that, really. No upside. No downside to it, but no upside to it. Um, they're probably going to expand margins very, very, very little, maybe 50 bips here, 20 bips here. So you got 2 to 3% revenue growth, a little bit of margin expansion. This is a 5 to 8% earnings grower, maybe, if that. Okay, so for that 5 to 8% earnings growth, what are you paying? What are you paying for that? You're paying 24 times forward earnings for 5% EPS growth. That's ridiculous. Like, the, why? You're paying 24 times earnings for 5% growth? That that's unreal. Like, I, I don't know why people, I mean, I know why they did it because they're playing the safety trade, but the safety trade got way too crowded, way too overbought, way too overvalued, way too overextended. If I'm looking at the multiples for, for P&G over the past, you know, several years, 16, 19, 20, 19, 22, 18, 23, 22, 19. And now we're at 24. So we're at the high end of its valuation band and the safety trades bend the trade for the past 12 months. Looks like it may be falling apart. Why, why chase that here? Why chase that? So I, I don't, I don't get Procter and Gamble. Um, you look at another safety name, the one you said, maybe McDonald's McDonald's like a little bit more because I like chicken nuggets. So I got to give them a little bit of love. <laughs> um, but also McDonald's, I mean, it's 25 times forward earnings. Like that, that's a pretty rich multiple for this company. That's historically the top end of its valuation band. We look at its at its growth profile. I mean, again, this is a five percent revenue grower, a little bit of margin expansion, maybe a eight, nine, ten percent EPS grower, so a little bit better, but still, why are you paying twenty five times for that? That's that that's ridiculously expensive for just a stable, slow grower. I think a lot of these safety names got overbought in twenty twenty two and now they're overvalued. It's plain and simple. And money's going to rotate out of that safety trade into the more aggressive risk on trade where you're getting much more attractive uh, valuation multiples for much bigger growth. And that's where I think people are going to are going to rotate to in, in 2023. So I would not get into the, you know, the, the massive um, uh, uh, safety trade that, that played out in, in 2022. So for example, it's just, you know, I kind of threw out some multiples of like, Basically, McDonald's and Procter and Gamble, we can say they're trading at twenty-five times for five to eight percent EPS growth, right? And if we look at um, uh, Microsoft, you know that's a company that's probably going to grow ten to fifteen percent per year on revenues over the next several years. They're definitely going to have margin expansion because they're going to use AI for cost efficiencies. So this is probably a fifteen to twenty percent EPS grower, in my opinion. That that's my personal model for this company. I think they grow EPS at a compound of fifteen to twenty percent rate, and they're trading at twenty nine, uh, twenty eight times forward earnings, right? Yeah, twenty eight times forward earnings. So they're trading at just slightly richer than McDonald's and Procter Gamble, twenty five. They're at 28. So basically ballpark the same. Yeah, McDonald's and Procter and Gamble are going to grow revenues five to ten percent, and Microsoft's going to grow three times as fast, 15% plus. Which one do you want to ride with? You want to ride with the Microsoft. You look at a company like um 
like uh, Google, Alphabet, that's probably the most attractively valued of the, of the mega cap techs in my opinion right now. You know, that's a stock that's trading at 19 times forward earnings. 19 times forward earnings. That's cheaper than McDonald's and Procter & Gamble. Considerably cheaper. And it's growing. Its revenue is probably, again, 10% plus for the foreseeable future with margin expansion through AI cost-cutting efficiencies. This is a 15% plus EPS grower trading at less than 20 times forward earnings, cheaper than McDonald's and Procter & Gamble. So this is why I think you got to ditch the safety trade and get into the, the tech trade, the growth trade. The divergence in, in multiples here just doesn't make sense. And you want to buy the stocks that are trading at cheaper multiples in the safety trades for bigger growth potential. That discrepancy is not going to last for a long time. So take advantage of it while it does. That's my opinion. <laughs> Okay. Uh, good to know you like the chicken nuggets. Uh, and that covers all of our topics, but we do have some fan questions starting with uh, Soundslight7754. Charge as you drive is like Musk's million bums on Mars. Pipe dream never happened. One non-contract charging station costs $5,000, needs sophisticated power, electronics, software, and capital investment. How can all streets and roads get covered with billions and billions of such equipment? You are absolutely right. It is a pipeline dream, and that's why I'm not investing it today. But hey, if a man can't dream, why live? It is dreams that create the foundation for better futures, better societies, and progress. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a pipeline dream. I do not think you're going to have solar electric vehicles on the roads in the next five years. But in 15, 20, 30 years when the cost of the things that you mentioned really decline because maybe we use AI to figure out how to produce it more efficiently. Maybe we find, you know, use AI to figure out, you know, a different way to, to, to mine these uh, metals or to mine the, the raw inputs, the raw costs. You know, there's going to be some way we're going to figure out how to bring the cost down of these things. And over time, I think it's a total... It's a dream, but it's a total possibility that yes, we do have solar electric vehicles everywhere in solar roll roads and solar walkways and all this stuff. I think that is, yeah, it's an absolute dream, but you got to dream a little. Don't invest in it. I'm not saying go out and buy solar electric vehicle <laughs> stocks. I'm not saying do that. Don't bet the farm on this stuff. In fact, I'm not saying bet anything on it. I'm not, I'm not invested in it. I'm not in that stuff, but Hey, we're here to think about the future. We're here to dream about the future. We're here to see a path forward for society to see a better way forward for humans that's part of the dream. Dream a little. So that's that, That's where I'm coming at from that. I'm not saying invest in the stuff, but just because it sounds like a pipeline dream doesn't mean it won't happen. Yeah, maybe Elon Musk going to Mars sounds like a pipeline dream, but my money's on the fact he's going to make it there before he's dead. And I, you know, I wouldn't bet against that. So dream a little, live a little. Doesn't mean you have to invest in it, but I think you you can't afford to to stay positive on you know long term 10 20 30 year trends and mm. i think the combination of solar and electric vehicles is one of those trends that pipeline dream absolutely but possible may surprise you okay uh next question from jube 3447 talking about ai ml ar 3d and metaverse are you familiar with canadian startup company next tech ar solutions i found it very interesting and in my opinion it has huge potential any thoughts about that one yeah, I looked at that company a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, they're doing some interesting stuff. They use the right buzzwords. Again, I think the problem is you talk about this with AI startups, you just got to be very selective. And that 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 one's not meeting my threshold of uh, selectivity. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's about as much as I can say about that, that startup. Um, 
again, the reality is, is that the best AI will be built by big tech companies. And so if you're looking at investing in an AI startup, you have to find a company that's either one crafted out a niche for itself um, in this very competitive industry or two has some capability to go up against big tech because that's who they're competing with. Uh, Next tech to me just doesn't doesn't have that. And so I I don't think it's something I want to really get into or get excited about at this point in time. Okay. Uh, next question from Fit on Curdy one one seven nine. Luke, do you have any thoughts on Airwinds? They recently announced they're going public through a SPAC merger. Seems like hover bikes would be in your wheelhouse. Uh, hover bikes. No, I haven't heard of this company. Airwinds. A E R W I N S. Airwinds. No, I have. I have. I've heard nothing about this company. Um, it's going public through a SPAC merger. Has it gone public yet? I believe it has. These things look wacky. <laughs> this looks like Star Wars brought to life. Mm-hmm. Listen, I mean, I, I, I'll look into this company. I've never looked into it, so I, I can't register a, a full opinion. But looking at it right now, this looks like a cool toy. Cool. And that, that's about it. GoPro mm-hmm. was a cool toy, too, and not mm-hmm. a great investment. So I think this looks like a cool toy to me. I, I, I don't really see the need for hoverboards and hover aircrafts right now. I don't think that's a, a big investable industry at the current moment. My opinion, and what I'm probably going to get to, again, I'll take a deeper look at it and let you know my full opinion next week. But just on a first glance right now, eh, probably not <laughs> a huge market, probably really expensive to make, don't really know what they're selling for. Probably a little bit ways off for, for profits and cash flows. If you're looking at 2023, I think there's a lot of great investment opportunities out there. Less risk, higher reward. I don't see why we'd roll the dice on Airwinds here. A freshly public company that uh, looks like it's making a cool toy, not much else. But I, 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 I'll i take a full look at it and give you a, a full kind of opinion next week. But for right now, I got to say my first glance isn't, isn't too impressed. Okay. Uh, next question from Igora33. 399. Luke, if today China and Russia make better green energy sources and sell them on market better than the U.S., would you go back on coal, oil, and gas? This thing is $555,000. Yeah, I'm almost, I'm almost certain I'm not going to like this thing. When I said cool toy, my toys don't cost 550 grand. In any event, sorry, I was looking at the Airwinds thing. I just clicked the order now button. I definitely should not have clicked that order now button. Uh, I thought um, you wanted it. All right. Yeah, no, no, we're not. We're not dropping 555 grand on a... Anyways, um, Russia, China, if they produce... Just read the question again, sorry. Uh, if today China and Russia make better green energy sources and sell them on market better than the US, would you go back on coal, oil, and gas? No, no. I mean, I, I, I think it's very important that the U.S. stays cost competitive. And I think there are there's a lot of uh, a lot of movement happening to make sure that does happen. Um, but no, I, I don't think you compromise the health of the planet for politics, frankly. Um, I, I mean, it's a personal belief. I'm, I'm very strong believer in cutting down carbon emissions and, and creating a society that can uh, have sustainability on earth for, for a long time um, on this planet for a long time. Cause I have a, a daughter and a, and a son on the way. So it's very important to me, very personal mission of mine. And I don't, I would not 
no. China makes cheaper green energy than us, then buy that green energy. So be it. I think that's you know that's just the the hit you got to take for for saving the planet. My two cents. Oh, I like this username, Perry the Platypus Three. Uh, can you shed some light on the company ASML? Not necessarily a hypergrowth stock, but could be a good split candidate. Uh, good split candidate, excellent long term hold. We're talking about the picks and shovels company of the semiconductor revolution. Yeah, I I love ASML. Um, I I think it's a fantastic firm. I think it's got a very wide competitive moat. I think they're um, irreplaceable in the semiconductor supply chain. Uh, they are a, I mean, they are a fast grower. They're guiding to twenty percent revenue growth this year. So I, maybe not hyper growth, but they're they're growing very quickly. Um, and I actually think the valuation is pretty discounted. I actually just updated my model on them, and I think the stock price is pretty attractive here. Technicals look good too. So. Yeah, I, I like ASML quite a bit here, quite a bit. All right. Uh, next question from Merchant Band Card nine six seven four. Luke, what happened to Fluence today? It was it was raising every day, and all of a sudden, it took a dive. That was three days ago. Uh, maybe that's why I took a dive because it was rising every day. <laughs> Stocks don't go up in straight lines. Fluence is. Uh, it's been a very strong performer. It's come, you know, off that $10 mark to 24, 25, came back in at 21. That's just, that's probably what it's going to do. And then I think it's going to bounce higher. And this, this is a long-term buy and hold for me. It's, you know, that long-term investment strategy, buy now, put in a coffee can, check on it in five years. Fluence is the leader in lithium-ion battery energy storage. Um, that is where the growth is right now. A lot of people ask, okay, why are you so bullish on lithium-ion battery energy storage and not other forms of battery energy storage like iron flow batteries? Because we need battery energy storage today and lithium-ion uh, battery energy storage systems are the only ones ready to deliver solutions today at scale. The other technologies, promising, interesting, mostly science fiction or mostly science projects, research projects right now. There are a few up and running and in various parts. There's actually one in San Diego. Uh, it's a different technology that's interesting, but none of these technologies are ready to scale and deliver what we need right now, which is massive amounts of battery energy storage systems. Lithium is ready to do that. Fluence is the leader in that. Love Fluence is a long-term buy and hold. The stock technically looks good. Got overbought, came back down, a little pullback. I think it rebounds nicely. So pretty bullish on that. All right. Uh, our next question from Luis Matarazzo, 6692. I read recently of a lawsuit against DNA. Is this a problem long-term? Uh, let me see what the lawsuit was. Uh, no, no, this looks like one of those silly, silly shareholder lawsuits. Yeah, this full, you know, for, for future reference for people listening, uh, these shareholder lawsuits happen all the time. They're nothing to worry about. Anytime a stock goes down and you get a shareholder lawsuit, they always amount to absolutely nothing. They are meaningless to the stock, meaningless to the business, meaningless to the performance of, of the asset. So just ignore them. That's what, that's what this one looks like. Okay. Uh, next question from... Subjourn single stud 106. I wonder if you could say something about stop loss. These stocks are highly volatile. Would it be other percentage limits than for value stocks? Yeah, I think the conversation around stop loss is pretty interesting. I mean, it depends uh, on what your investment style is and what your risk tolerance is and what your time horizon is. I can't give you um, exact advice on that stuff. That's, that's impossible for me to know. But um, personally, I, I think that, you know, like I said, my ideal investment strategy, you got the long-term buy and hold and you got the short-term 
uh, technical stuff. Short-term technical stuff, you use tight stop losses. You get out when things start breaking down technically. You're looking at, you know, no more than a 20% stop loss on those things. So you keep it tight. On the long-term buy and hold, I my ideal personal investment strategy does, does not employ um, stop losses on long-term buy and hold because those things are volatile. And, you know, Amazon, Alphabet, Netflix, all those companies had 50% plus drawdowns, if not 80% plus drawdowns before they went on to soar thousands and thousands and thousands of percent. So you just, if you really believe in the company, you really believe in the firm, you got to just absorb the market volatility, especially in bear markets. So it depends on on what you're doing what you're trying to accomplish but you got a long-term time horizon like me and you really believe in the companies you're investing in in the long-term buy and hold part of your your portfolio your strategy uh i don't think stop losses are all that necessary okay and our last question from rob norman 3530 luke if oil were to hit 120 dollars per barrel by spring how would that affect inflation and the fed pause everything would be over. I mean, just plain and simple. That, that would, that would destroy everything. It would destroy oil stocks, it would destroy energy stocks. That would put us in a situation like 2008 where we just absolutely soared on oil prices. The inflation problem gets way worse. The fed's got to fight that inflation with a bunch more rate hikes, 25, maybe get back into some fifties in there. Rates go surging higher. Yields go surging higher. The housing market collapses. The stock market collapses and everything goes, <laughs> everything would be gone. Oil to 120 is the death of the U.S. stock market and the U.S. economy for at least a year. All right. Well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Luke, this was a long one. Do you have any last words before we wrap today? No, like you said, it was a long one. So I think I got everything, everything out that I needed to get out. all right in that case i want to thank everybody for listening please if you have any questions or comments for luke leave them in the comments section we'd love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and as always to see if we can answer any of your burning questions as always please don't forget to like and subscribe and we will see you all next week until then bye all